and welcome to Collisions YYC. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Today on the show, I sit down with Mr. Jeff LaFrance. Jeff is the president at VizWorks, a highly innovative, future-facing, technology-centric organization that doesn't get caught up on the technologies on the table. It focuses on the problem at hand. Jeff shares his views of the way forward is not about the amount of startups we create, but the number of problems that we solve using technology. Join me as I welcome Jeff as he shares what he sees for the future of Calgary. Jeff LaFrance. That's an interesting... um, when you, yeah, when you think about that challenge of just the human, the human factor. Absolutely. And that's, you know, we, you know, Ray DePaul is a really good example of, you know, where he sees this need for people to go through multiple different careers within their lifetime. Right. Uh, but people's ability to be flexible and to recognize that, okay, that was great. I love that. That was fun. Now I'm going to go to the next thing. Not everybody is really comfortable with that. No, it's, it's, I was talking to you. I met with Jim Gibson from mm-hmm. Rainforest. Jim was the first guest we had on the show, yeah. and he, you know, it was great for the first episode because he really brought it back to like that the, the concept of the rainforest and that change has to start at the individual level, Absolutely. and our ability to adapt and grow and you know forget about the organizational side. That's still just a product of a whole bunch of people, <laughs> all, yep. all, all wrapped up, in, all, exactly. all wrapped up inside yep. it. So with VizWorks, how what's been your growth curve? Like, was it really quick? And then like, has it been a little bit of a yeah? It's because you guys are living it. You're doing it. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're in that tech. Ecosystem ecosystem startup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we we were doing pretty well before the downturn. I think we'd grown up to about 10, 12 people maybe at that okay. time. And then when the downturn hit, everything went sideways, as uh, as you would expect. Yes. Uh, we were either directly or indirectly had majority of our business that was oil and gas related. And so we tried to pivot technologies and, and business focus and all the rest of it. And that took quite a while for us to get through that process. I think in early 2017, we were down to about six people. Okay. And so in 2000, what was it, September 2017, when we moved into the Nucleus facility, we had eight people, uh, and then we just started to take off from there. So okay. our customers, our engagements, and really our growth has been based on customers. It hasn't, we've never had external investment in the company to date. Oh, thank, I was, that was my next question in yeah. terms of how you guys have grown it and funded it, because I know yeah. those, these are all challenges. Like when Absolutely. you're a small business, as they joke, you're like a deer in the forest. Everything can kill you. Yeah, yeah. You're always on guard because yeah. anything can come out of anywhere. Exactly. Too much so, success, too much failure, too, no money, too much money. Yeah, growing too fast can kill you just as quickly as Yes, not it can. So. And there's, um, so feels yes. like those are success problems, but there's still problems all oh, the same. For sure. <laughs> Yeah, and so we and we've definitely organically grown based on customer engagements is how we've done it to date. Although uh, where we are as an organization right now is that we've not only doing uh, a lot of really interesting consulting, custom solutions type work in the human right. engagement space for for customers, but we also are building products as a result of engagements that we're now going to spin into new organizations as well. So it's a it's a blending of different things, and through that process, oh, we're we'll to raise okay. funding to allow us to really grow and market those. Uh, and highly scalable, uh, you know, time period uh, that we need to work on. And in terms of the the customers you're working with, are they fairly are they Western Canadian? Are they global? Is it very Calgary centric? Like where where, where mm-hmm. are your customers coming from, or where are you getting to have those convers those problem solving conversations? Sure, yeah. And majority of our customers to date have been in the Calgary region, although uh, we're certainly getting a lot of interest and traction outside of outside of Calgary, outside of Canada, for that matter, right now. Uh, in fact, we're planning to go to Saudi Arabia again in September because we've got a lot of interest in the Middle East right now and the kind of technology developing. Uh, and also down into South America and so Brazil, there's some strong interest in that region. So we're getting pulled into different regions based upon customer interests. And is it because you're starting to get some traction here? People are starting to become aware of, like, like you said at the beginning, when you're brand new, it's tough. Yeah. Who, well, who are you? And if I don't know you, I don't certainly don't know your company or your brand. Exactly. That, that's certainly part of it is that uh, the awareness of what we're doing. And in particular, some of the products that we've developed are really hitting the mark right now. And that's getting global interest in, in what that can do to really help organizations. And back to what you said earlier, that those products you develop were directly in response to talking to customers and understanding the problems that they were having. Exactly. Yes. So with with the that's well, I, should, I love it. Technically, it's the right. It's the right. It's the only way because otherwise, you're just hoping you get it right. right. <laughs> Do you find there's a shift in, you know, back to the transformation question, companies in Calgary, some of these larger organizations, I was on your website, you've got kind of, it's a little bit, there's some who's who of brands on there in terms of who you're working with. Are they more open to innovation? Are they more open to change that they're willing to have conversations with you? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So it's a um, <laughs> mixture, I would say. So okay. it's like any other organization, it's made up of people. And so there are certain people within every organization who are open to change, open to innovation that really want... Back to the, to the psychology of the individuals. And as an organization as a whole, um, you know, an awful lot of the large organizations have been structured in a way that they're actually 
how would I put this? Uh, they have challenges with small to medium businesses because of the potential risk that's associated with them. Yep. And so there are an awful lot of people whose job is essentially to identify those kind of risks and to say no. Uh, and so the process of getting engaged... When that's your stuff. job, it's amazing how proficient you get at finding those risks. <laughs> Absolutely, right? And it's, you Only know, look it's, for blue cars. I'm going to find some blue cars. Yeah, <laughs> and, and there's an old saying that you know, it, you know, nobody gets fired for selecting IBM, right? This kind of I, saying yes. it's a secure, big organization. And yep. if we, we select them, even if they go sideways, well, I'm never going to get fired because it was IBM. Yeah, of course. Big uh, ours, yes. Yeah. I've, I've used that quote before. Yeah, so, it, yeah. You know, and so you know, in small to medium businesses, that's one of the challenges of engaging with these large organizations is that who are you? From the large organization perspective, you're often perceived more as a risk than an opportunity. 100%. Because uh, even if it is a great idea, can you support us? Can you do it? Can, can, you, can, you, can you go to scale? Yeah. You know, yeah. Are you going to run out of money? Is the founder going to leave? Like, what's going to happen? Are you going to yeah, get bought out and disappear by one of the companies? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, another thing for sure. And, yeah. you know, and, and the, um, we see that that's a really good point in the technology industry is that we see an awful lot of organizations that are there for an exit. Their whole purpose in getting the organization up and running is to build it yes. up quickly and then exit. And it doesn't really help the local economy when you do that. No, yeah. What you get is a few people that made a bunch of money and they probably don't even stay here because now they've got money, they want to go somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, so you're not really helping the local economy. And so although Canada in general and Calgary in particular uh, is well known for being very innovative, we don't tend to grow those things here. Ray, Ray talked about that a little bit, his experience even in Waterloo and then coming yeah. here and seeing difference and the ability to operationalize a business versus chasing an exit. You know, and he's exactly. someone who, who was through an exit situation. Yeah. So he talked about that and it, it's interesting and, you know, he, is that kind of a Canadian, what, what is that? But you're right, what does that build for long term? It builds little spikes, little tent poles. Yeah. Boom, oh, big success and then start over again. And that's, when we started Visorix, that's one of the things that we were very much opposed to. We oh, wanted to build okay, as far a Calgary-based organization with a global market for what we do, but we didn't want to build something up that was going to be a quick flash in the pan and be sold off to somewhere in the U.S. or Europe or wherever yes. and never really benefit long-term the capabilities and the the, the environment here in Alberta. Well, interesting. You mentioned just in passing the productization and maybe spinoffs over there. Like, sounds like you're finding ways to create that and mm -hmm. create those moments of like, hey, here's a product. Let's push it over here. Great. Someone can buy that, but it doesn't disrupt what we're trying to do at VizWorks. Right. Ah, oh, interesting. And do you guys, obviously, it's interesting to hear because, you know, for you to survive or for you to thrive, you've got to have organizations that are willing to have conversations about doing things differently. Right, yeah. And is, that, is that getting better in Calgary? Like, is there a move? Because, again, this is about transformation. Like, oh, mm -hmm. we're talking about it, but somebody sooner or later has to write a check or even be open to a chat right. about what could be different. Well, and it's, uh, ultimately, you have to create your own opportunities. And so, as an example of that, um, we were working with Synovus, developing some kind of leading-edge technology um, test projects, if you like, around particular technology applications in business problems that they had. So really as a, I don't know if you want to call it a skunk works type of engagement with Synovus around their innovation okay. agenda. And through that, we started to recognize that the kind of problems that Synovus was looking at were the same kind of problems in many ways as every other large organization in the oil and gas industry right. was looking at, but they were never talking to each other about it at least not talking in the way that they could actually work together with each other. Uh, and so together with the group at Synovus, um, I put together a consortium of large oil and gas producers and midstream companies to talk about common digital technology challenges that they have and ways to work together to actually address those challenges. What a powerful way to position, you know, your company at the table, but to try to not, like, because these little, in isolation, nothing's really going to change. That's mm -hmm. the whole point why we call it collisions, because you got to bang yeah. some people, you got to bang some ideas together. Exactly. And how long, how long ago was that? So that was about two and a half years ago now. Okay. And, and was that receptive? Like, were they open uh, to that? Yeah, very much so. That's and, interesting. Because uh, they're all dealing with the same, this, what, what is this tech monster that we're trying to get our hands exactly. around? And what they, now, we're no longer sitting at the table as a vendor. Okay. Uh, because that was one of the transformations that that group needed to go through as it became a group of peers engaging with each other to talk about those kind of things. Uh, now, I'm still engaged with it, but not through a vendor relationship. Okay, I understand. I'm also... Um, yeah, a, sooner or later, the lines get blurred and like, who's a genius yeah, who's, and if you truly want to open that up, you've got to kind of let it take its kind of vendors at the table, because it changes the conversation. When totally does. The of course. There. Of course. So, um, uh, there's another organization in town here called CRIN, the Clean Resource Innovation Network. Okay. Uh, so this is one of the super clusters in Canada that's funded to support, uh, uh, in this particular case, clean resource extraction technologies. 
Uh, I'm the digital theme lead for Crin. So I help with this digital transformation process for the whole oil and gas industry through my engagement in Crin. Uh, and through that engagement in Crin, I'm now part of this consortium helping out these oil and gas companies and midstream producer or midstream organizations uh, with this digital transformation process that they're looking at. Which for you, the digital transformation is always at the root. Yeah, exactly. I've, I've in a number of the things that I'm involved in, it's it's really the recognition that digital transformation is kind of the key element that a lot of these organizations need to go through. Mm-hmm. And there's, that's yeah. So because for you to even to be successful as your business, you've got to elevate the whole idea and the openness and what's possible. Right. Because again, if I don't know, I don't know. I don't know. Right. And exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, so it's an interesting it's, journey you guys have been on, <laughs> kind of in parallel with with as calories evolving and yeah. I'm arguing we've been kind of forced to look at things differently. Correct. Yeah. Let's it's not waste a good downturn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's yeah. It's an old saying, but for yes, sure. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we we tend to do that a little too often, but it, uh, yeah, you know, we're. I'm really seeing is that uh, in order to really come out of where we have been, we need to evolve our economy and our economic perspective, uh, but leverage what we've got. And yeah. so it, there's tremendous opportunities, and we know that in the global space around digital technology and then digital evolution and everywhere the application of digital technologies. Uh, but we have this massive energy industry here. Yes, so using that combination, we can create a new economy here that's parallel to the actual oil and gas energy sector as well. Tell me more about that, like new economy, because I agree, we have this great resource that has tons of data, tons of information, tons of capital to be employed. Talk more about, like, I'm, I'm curious to, you know, the digital transformation. What does that look like? So where where, where do we need to double down? I'm kind of being pointed now. Yeah. Where do we need to double down as, as Calgary to really take advantage of what you just said? So it's ultimately comes down to um, recognizing opportunities that we build technologies to support what's going on in the gas has much broader applications than just on the gas industry. Okay, And so I'll give you an example of that. So we, working with Synovus originally, we developed an augmented reality-based uh, 3D viewer technologies, which would allow us to see infrastructure in three dimensions in augmented reality and allow people to walk around and get a really good sense of what that would look like once it's actually built out. Uh, so that was a few years ago we did that particular work with them. We started realizing that, well, wait a minute, that actually is the tip of an iceberg of a problem that's endemic within the construction industry. Right. Uh, in fact, Gardner estimates that around 30% of the cost of a typical construction project is in rework, uh, which is, for those of you who know, the construction industry is essentially all the work that has to be done through change orders and other kind of things yeah. during the construction process or post-construction. Because even. we didn't know, we didn't realize, we didn't know that this pipe was actually going to be right over top of this other pipe and how are you going to change it in the future? I've right. heard those stories. Yeah, so like, all sorts of things you like looked, that. Yeah, right? I looked at the drawing, it made sense, but then in real life it didn't hold up. Right, and, and that's... And, that it's an interesting point because what it comes down to is human psychology or in fact our inability to truly understand three-dimensional spaces unless we're actually in those three-dimensional spaces. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. Uh, And so some of this comes out of our academic roots in terms of understanding human engagement with digital information, in this case three-dimensional information, recognizing that if you look at 3D on a 2D screen, which is the classic approach right now for doing model reviews, the people who are designing this stuff, they live and breathe this. This is what they do in their daily job. And so they, they understand it. They get it. They know what's going on there. But the people you really want to get their engagement from are the people like the operators and the maintenance people and the safety people and the people who are actually know how to run a facility like yep. that. That you have bring to them, use this thing once you've built it. Yeah. And, you know, but you bring them in you know, maybe once or twice a year for a model review. They don't live and breathe this stuff. So when they're looking at 3D on a 2D screen, they don't get it. And in fact... The, the structure of a model review is such that you've got a group of 20-plus people sitting around a big table looking at a big screen. Most of those people are not actually engaged in the conversation because whatever is being shown there is not relevant to them particularly. You have no connection to it. Mm. So you've got to, you know, maybe two-thirds of the people on average are not actually engaged in a conversation or are looking at that. Then when it's their particular piece, they look at it, they really don't even know what they're looking at. Uh, and again, coming to psychological terms, what you're doing is creating what's called a cognitive load. You're basically forcing them to try and imagine what that 3D on a 2D screen would look like in actual 3D. And then there's no sense of scale. So now you actually have to force them to try and imagine what it would look like in scale. And once you've got their brain really heavily loaded, (laughs) then you ask them to find problems with what they're looking at. And so no wonder problems get through the model review process and only get found when you get into the actual construction. Yeah, you just, you just sign off to move away from this uncomfortable process you're being forced into. Yeah, arguably. It, you know, and it's, it's, it's human psychology, right? It's yes. the way that people think about things is the way that people engage with things. And so recognizing that that was an ongoing problem and, it, and you know, 
in just the industrial, commercial, governmental construction space, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of a tr uh, $3 trillion spent every year. So somewhere in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars wasted every year. It's a massive wow. problem. That's, when you put, yeah, when you put it into context of 30% rework. Yeah. You know, and so if you look at it from that perspective, you say, well, okay, if we can address that, we can actually solve a massive global challenge that uh, is in every industry that's dealing with construction. So it may start in oil and gas, but it goes everywhere. So a perfect example of something that becomes its own pillar, its own product for about evolution and development Absolutely. for you guys. Yeah. Oh, that's so, it, I love the practicality of, like, again, boil it down to what is the problem the customer's having. Right. It's funny. We did a virtual reality uh, project for one of our clients, and we sat in the room. And we said, okay, in a perfect world, what would you do? We'd put them in a helicopter. We'd fly them up to the field. We'd walk them through the, the, this modular well pad solution that they were doing. We said, okay, so if cost was no barrier. So but then we started working back. And then we landed on virtual reality. Mm -hmm. And purely from how do you get, how do you take them there and give them that experience? So it's just right. interesting, resonating. Well, and we built that solution yeah. for you. Yeah, that's awesome. Was that the case? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> ah, there was a layer in between me and you. That's yeah, why I didn't exactly. know that. Okay, so ah, so we've worked together. I didn't Indeed, even realize. Didn't that, know it, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Ah, with Adam and those guys. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so that Hive project. Yep. I saw you smirking. I'm like, okay, he yeah. knows exactly what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Ah, interesting. But I, I loved it because in the room at the time with the client, it was like, okay, what's the problem? Right. And what would we solve if there was no barriers? Let's remove everything. Yeah. Okay, now let's look where technology, you know, and when they arguably came in, they're like, we need, we need VR. I'm like, whoa, stop. Do we? Don't we? We ended up back there, but it yeah. was like truly working through the problem. And I think it's easy to try to swing the tech. They came in swinging the VR hammer. They, yeah, and, and that's, we <laughs> or the see VR nail. I'm not even sure what that was. Exactly. And, and we see the love of the kind of agents awesome. uh, because, uh, often, um, how do I say it? It's the fad of a technology is what drives people's conversation. Uh, yes. And we actually have to pull them back quite often to, okay, what is your business problem? What are you trying to solve? What is the real issue you're trying to deal with? And then we find the appropriate technology to solve that business problem. We don't start with the technology and say, this is the solution to whatever problem you might have. Uh, but we get that from both sides. We get that from yeah. technology companies that are trying to push a technology. We also get it from customers who you know, for whatever reason, found out about a particular technology, I think it's going to be this, you know, solution for all their you problems. You go to a trade show, you read an article, you're, you know, we're, yeah. we're all over, over, sometimes over-informed and under-educated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I say that yeah. like from completely. Yeah. So would you say from a, a Calgary perspective, as we're moving and, you know, we've heard we need a thousand startups and we need 10,000 ideas and thousand mm -hmm. startups to end up with one unicorn and, do you think there's anything, are we getting it, and this is a bold, maybe a weird question, but are we getting it wrong? Is there too much grabbing a technology and hoping to find a place to fit? Like, are you seeing that happening in this, in our, in our environment right now? We're not naming names. We're just talking. Yeah, yeah, you know, the so I th my perspective on that is that we tend to focus on the wrong metrics. Okay. Uh, Tell me more. You know, it's again, from our perspective, right? It comes down to solving business problems. You can have as many startups as you want, but I don't care. Unless they're solving business problems, you know, sure, I can start up 10 companies tomorrow. It's just a number. Mm -hmm. It's a number. What does that mean, right? And so it comes down to, are we actually addressing business problems that have real opportunities associated with them? That's what I actually care about. Not whether we have 1,000 or 10,000 or however many, you know, startup companies. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and you're right. Unfortunately, if you go after the numbers game where it's like, let's just start up more companies, you're going to have massive failures, Massive education, too. People learn a lot for that process, hopefully. Um, but you could actually increase your success rate if you actually focus them better. It becomes that, I did a thousand cold calls today. What was your sales strategy? I don't know. I just did a calls. Because yeah, exactly. I knew sooner or later, somebody was going to be in a exactly. weekend place and buy what I have. Yep. So how do we measure Sorry, how do we, me how do we measure that? Like, what would that look like as a KPI? Because the, the thousand startups, that's almost an easy number to throw out there. It's like, sure. oh, a thousand startups. Sounds yep. good. It's, it's quotable. Yeah. How do we measure the amount of companies that have been started that directly correlate to a real-time business problem? So this is where we're seeing some of these initiatives coming out of CRIN, the Clean Resource Innovation yes. Network, and, uh, and, some, and the broader uh, consortiums uh, that we put in place, and PTAC, and these other kind of organizations, is they're really starting to get back to these large organizations and say, okay, tell us your challenges. Identify what your business needs are. And then once we have those business needs, now we can start making that connection between organizations that have challenges and organizations that either have or can create solutions. To help bridging the gap. To bridge the gap. And that's where we should be measuring it. How often are we actually identifying and solving challenges? To me, that's a real metric of success rather than how many startups do we start. 
that well, it makes so much more sense. There's a level of practicality there from a pure business perspective that makes a heck of a lot more sense. And yeah. I've been touting for years, like customer, the customer's ultimately in control. So, and especially now more than ever, because yeah. customers can pivot and go somewhere else. That you know that we all are empowered by the devices in our pocket. Often, well, and there's mindset. another aspect to that though, and that's that's where an awful lot of the organizations are challenged is they actually don't know what their business problems are. Uh, there was a, that's, a hard, that's hard work. Oh, it, it is. And, you know, it's, it's, and it's, uncom- it's uncomfortable. It's, it's, uh, you know, and, and so, in fact, I was talking to one fellow who, was, mm. who has a very large organization that he's uh, involved with, and, and he was saying exactly that. You know, they had this wonderful conversation with a, a solution provider, and their team internally was saying, this is great, we'd love to do this. And he asked the question, well, what's the business problem we're trying to solve? And they couldn't answer it. And so they ultimately had to abandon that engagement because they realized that they didn't actually know what they were trying to solve, what was actually going to make a difference for their organization. Uh, and it starts with that. And so the better we get at identifying and uh, recognizing what those challenges are, the better we can engage with the people who provide the solutions. Well, it sounds so simple when you lay it out, when you lay it out that way. <laughs> I will. <laughs> no, I'm, it's a simple not, concept, but yeah, it's not as simple to implement. And as from an organizational, I'm a large organization. I'm a large. I'm small. I'm midsize. It doesn't matter. I'm 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 in business. How would someone go about that? Is it outside consultants? Is it like how how would you start to because outside perspectives are hugely valuable? Yeah, I've certainly found it's yeah. Sometimes you need that. You need that perspective. Well, Kirsty, that was Kirsty Boyle. That was kind of her background, right? Exactly. Going in and saying, okay, let's really identify: is there even a need for this? Is this even if this this like yeah. is there is it commercially viable? Does yeah. anyone even want you to solve this problem? Right. Yeah. 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 yeah and that's and that's it's a bit of a discovery process. Often, you know, working with organizations to work through what they consider to be their business problems. Uh, my own past and some of the other stuff that I've done is really, we find this a lot that people have a, I want to say this, they feel their particular pain. And so it's identifying their particular pain, but sometimes it's their pain is only a particular symptom of a much larger challenge. For the yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so one of the requirements, uh, if you have the time and ability to do that is to walk them back, you know, okay, this is your particular pain, but who else might have a similar pain or how is this pain connected to other organizational challenges that might be going on and other people who may be seeing a different perspective on that particular pain. And if you can start providing that broader perspective on it, you can actually get to a root cause that may be bigger than that one particular issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, Synovus is a really good example of that when, when we worked with them in developing this first augmented reality visualization tool, what they were running into was a challenge of uh, as-built versus planned comparisons. Okay. So they were building in a modular infrastructure basis. Yep. They were shipping to site. They were, in theory, assembling on site, but in practice, it didn't always work that in way. In theory, it should have been Lego. Yeah, it should it have been Lego, but it wasn't always. And, and so okay. you know, the, the interface between the two modules was not necessarily the way it was supposed to be. And not because it wasn't designed correctly. It's because when the, uh, in that particular case, the people who were constructing it, when they started to construct it, realized that how it was designed wasn't easy to construct. Okay. Back, back to you, circling back to what you were talking about before. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, so the, the, and so they identified that if we could just compare the as-built to the plan using augmented reality and overlay it and see the differences, we can then adjust the design in the next one to match what was really built. And that's great. Versus getting all the parts of sitting out on the pad in the field and not being able to plug them all together. Right. Or taking twice as long or three times as long sure. to do it. And, and that's, that's really, you know, it was a really good and innovative way to address that particular problem, but it was actually just a piece of the larger issue, which is what we've ended up building a product around, which is oh, that people in the okay. constructability and the operations, maintenance, safety, and so on, are not uh, engaged in the development process for the design in the way that they can actually get their value out of it. And so in this particular case, the constructability people weren't as engaged in the design of the modules as they probably needed to be, which means that when they actually went to build it, they couldn't at least not the way it was designed. Yes. And so that raised the much larger issue of, okay, this 30% rework cost in the construction industry, not all of it, but a large percentage of it is due to design errors. And so if we can address those design errors, we can massively reduce the construction rework costs. And errors were made just because they didn't run it out to the end. You didn't really extrapolate it right out to the, the maintenance guy. Right. Who yeah. has to change the bearing, the seal, the, the, the thing. Yeah. And, and there's, that should be simple because it's a fail point and now it takes me two days to, and yeah. I have to put the whole plant down to do it. <laughs> well, you know, and it, it can be as simple as it wasn't designed for me to get a wrench in there to remove that pump. Yep. And so how the heck am I actually going to remove this? Now it becomes a massive amount of work to remove that pump for maintenance versus a simple thing. Or if we didn't design it correctly in a way that, uh, well, one example I've heard about, one of the very large oil and gas companies, and I won't name who they are, but when they designed this big facility, they built out this facility. After they'd built out the facility and, and the operators came into the facility, they realized that all the valves are too high for them to reach. 
So now they've got this massive operational issue is that they can't actually reach all these valves to operate this facility. And so they ultimately ended up having to buy 700 ladders to distribute throughout the facility so that people could climb up these ladders to reach these valves. But now you've got an amplified safety potential so you've got risk. An ongoing safety slip, and operational slip, slip, issue. Slip, but at least it's a manageable one, and which it wasn't And before. let's be blunt, where's the goddamn ladder? <laughs> I, just, I need this ladder, now yeah. it's been taken to somewhere else in the plant. <laughs> and so... I'm sure there's a there's a Dilbert skit about it somewhere because that sounds exactly like yeah. that. You know, but, but, but how do we solve? But how do we solve that? Mm-hmm. Well, so they solved it ultimately by buying all these ladders. But what should have been done is in the design it's phase, ba- somebody should have been able to see that those are going to be too high for Rayberry to reach. But in the design phase, when they're looking at a you know a two D screen and trying to imagine right. what this would look like in actual three D, nobody had the true sense of scale of how high those things were. That your workers aren't eight feet tall. <laughs> And so it went all the way through construction, all the way through to the point where they were actually the operators trying to operate the facility when they realized that this isn't going to work operationally. Uh, but that's a really good example of where you know it could have been caught much much earlier in the process if they'd been able to visualize it the way that they needed to. Right. Uh, and you know the the concept essentially is can you do a site visit in the design? Hundred percent. And it's interesting because you you, you know. Insert oil and gas, but you could insert any industry. Any industry, any industry doesn't any matter. Any construction-related stuff that's going on yeah. there. And other kind of manufacturing as well. It's $3 trillion worth of, worth, worth of opportunity exactly. there. So getting back to the concept of collisions, and you know, I really believe that things, come, things change when you bang different groups of different perspectives together. Is there any industries you see here in Western Canada that could, could borrow and, and lean on each other a little bit? I've had one, mm-hmm. uh, Eric Allen from Tundra, Eric and I were chatting, and he's, yep. he's, he sees a lot of things that ag has de-risked over the years that he feels sure. oil and gas could benefit in. Yep. So in your space, it sounds like you're dealing with a variety of companies. Is there anybody you see that like, hey, you need to look over the fence what these guys are doing as kind of status quo that mm-hmm. might be innovative for you? Is there anything that stands there for you in that section? Well, so, yeah, we were actually working a lot of different industries as a result of the kind of things we do. Uh, oil and gas, obviously, in the energy sector more broadly. Construction now, uh, starting oil and gas, but going more broadly again. Um, we're also getting in the defense and aerospace industry right now. We're seeing a lot of the same technology needs are crossing into the defense and aerospace industry as well. And so uh, we see certainly a tremendous amount of cross-fertilization that goes across industries. And so that's, I think that's one of the things that we probably don't do as well as we should, is really look yeah. across industries and see whether there are opportunities for what we're doing that fit into other industries. There can be such a tendency to think that our, our little unique snowflake is different and it's, we, no one else really understands what we're going through. Yeah. But is, is technology kind of normalizing that a little bit more? Like what a good technology over here can do is something similar, same, same, but different over there? Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, and, and defense industry is a wonderful example of that in right. terms of the... Um, without getting a lot of detail, the, the federal government, the way they structure the funding for the defense industry, they're really pushing uh, adoption of technologies or development of technologies by small to medium businesses. So they're leveraging the massive amounts of money they're giving out to the defense industry and requiring the defense industry work with small to medium businesses to support the requirements of those particular projects. Oh, interesting. Okay, so kind of allowing it to flow through, if you will. Exactly. And so they're, they're, the federal government made this decision years ago around what they called Industrial and Technological Benefits, or ITB, program to really leverage that. And so a minimum of 15% of every large defense contract has to be subcontracted to small to medium businesses. Oh, I have not heard that. Uh, and then if a, a large uh, defense contractor has to buy something to support a contract, like a ship or a plane or whatever they have to buy, uh, if they... Uh, spend Canadian taxpayer money outside of Canada to support that project, they have to re-spend that money inside of Canada on something else. Okay. And they're incented to spend it on supporting small to medium businesses. Uh, Keeps it inside the ecosystem and helps elevate. Exactly. And and so but most organizations in Western Canada don't even know about this. Yes. You know, it's very much uh, known more in Eastern Canada where a lot of the headquarters and the government and so on are located, but there's, uh, there must be at least a half a dozen or more defense companies here in Calgary that most people don't even know are actually in Calgary. You never even hear about them. Right. Yeah. And so those companies are very interested in working with small to medium businesses to leverage the kind of capabilities those companies have as a small business to support the kind of work that they're doing as a large organization. Uh, and it doesn't, it's not always defense-related applications, yep. by the way. So Raytheon, as an example, I think is exactly, but I think they're the world's largest training organization, if I remember correctly, the stats. Mm-hmm. And so I think they train 
the majority of the Mr. Goodwrench mechanics in the U.S. as an example, if one step that I remember. So, so, so random, uh, yeah, yeah you know, so random things you don't know about. And, and that's the thing with these large multinational organizations are into a tremendous amount of things that may have nothing to do whatsoever with defense. They just happen to have a defense contract in Canada. Right. Uh, Mercedes-Benz, they're a big defense <coughs> contractor because they sell, sell vehicles to the defense industry. Right. Boeing, you know, so these are large organizations that do things that are completely outside and we wouldn't even necessarily think of them as defense-related, uh, but they have defense projects. And so as a result of that, they have these obligations to work with small to medium businesses, and we don't take enough advantage of them in Western Canada. How, how does a small business, uh, small to medium-sized business go about finding out? Because I've often, I, I always consider myself very poor mm-hmm. at taking advantage of some of these things that are out there that, that provide support. Is there resources or places we can steer people to go and learn more, find Abs- out? Oh, absolutely. So in Western Canada, we have what's called WCDIA, the Western Canadian Defense Industries Association. So that's an organization that uh, is free to join, as far as I recall. Um, or low cost to join anyway, but that's a defense industry representation organization in Western Canada. And they put on uh, regular workshops to teach small to medium businesses how to engage with the large defense contractors. And uh, it's definitely worth, you know, pursuing for anybody who's interested in that because the amount of money we're talking about is certainly massive. You know, yeah, but you're talking 15% of a, of a multi, like a billion dollar deal. There's significant flow through or absolutely. like trickle down effect, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, and, and the, the other side, so there's that one is, you know, there's, yeah, that's there's just hundreds one. of millions that's, of dollars spent on these kind of things, right? Yeah. So there's certainly a massive amount there. But the other side of it where you have this obligation because you spend money outside of Canada, uh, they're highly incented to work with small to medium businesses, particularly in an R&D type phase mm-hmm. where these businesses are developing a new technology that may take three or four or five years to actually turn from a concept into a commercial product right. uh, and engage in universities as well on the research side of it. And the obligations they have under that side of it, um, just the, I don't know, the top, 10, 12 companies that we've talked with have close to two, $3 billion of obligations they have to spend. And they have a limited amount of time to spend it in. It's amazing when you can plug into a situation when that money has to be put to use. Yeah. Like we have to, use, we have to do this. Well, and it's, it's, it's sitting it, there. It's mm-hmm. sitting there. It has to be put to use. And one of the under interesting things, because the federal government wants the small to medium businesses to succeed, any intellectual property that's generated as a result of that engagement is owned by the small to medium business. Nice. Mm-hmm. And so you've basically got a large organization that's telling you about a business problem. They want to work with you to solve that business problem. They want to license the technology from you once you're done. But you still have the ability to sell it to other organizations as well when you're done. And they have funding to flow through and they to have help money you to, to actually do the R&D, not just like when it's ready, cuff us a call because we're interested. Yeah, exactly. And the thing, and that's huge because that puts that's that fuel, that gasoline you, like, that you need to light that fire right. for a small business. And arguably, if you look at these big defense contractors, their ability to be nimble, agile, come up with new tech, it's probably a lot harder for them because <laughs> they're so focused versus a 15-person shop who's like, we're, like your shop who's very nimble right. and probably very, very responsive to and has an ecosystem designed to to quickly solve problems. Right. Yeah, you know, the, the, the biggest thing about these organizations is they're very, very good at running projects. That is their right. main capability of running these large-scale, long-term projects. They will have innovation groups within each one of these organizations, but they don't have everything. Yep. And so what they're looking for is pieces that are not necessarily dealt with within their own organizations. Such and 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 you said bluntly from a from a KPI perspective, we're we're weak on that in Western Canada. Right. Yeah, we don't take as much advantage of it as because it's just not as well known in Western Canada. Yeah. So we don't take as much advantage of it, even though we have, as I said, at least half a dozen or more, probably ten, twelve defense companies here in Calgary. Yes, that you never hear about. That you don't hear about exactly. And it's I found, and this is I'm, I grew up back east. I grew up in Montreal and lived just some time in Toronto and here. There's. There, the government is very intertwined with 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 um, commercial operations. It's just it's a different mindset there. Mm-hmm. Some would say good, some would say bad, depending sure. on. I moved here; it very much was like, okay, government, you stay over here, business is going to stay over here in its lane, and we're going to do our own things, kind of get out of our way. Listening to you talk, there feels like there's a lot of like right now. We feel like we're in an all hands on deck situation. Sure. Do you feel that there is a good blending between you know because you've obviously had very good success with the blend between business and academia mm-hmm. and that blend. What, what role do you see government playing in Western Canada? And I know that's probably an interesting, loaded question. The smile on your face tells me uh, it is. Uh, I have mixed feelings about it. Okay. It so, uh, one of the, come back to this ITP program as an example of that. So, in that particular case, what the government is doing is incenting the large organizations to work with small immune businesses. So you can look at this two ways. You know, the same amount of money, if the large business had just given it back to the government and the government gave it out as a funding program, you could have essentially flowed the same amount of money. Right, okay. 
But as a company, which would I rather have? Would I like to work with a large organization that has a business problem and want to pay me to solve that business problem versus get a government grant to solve a business problem that I actually don't know whether anybody cares about? Right. Well, of course, I want to actually yeah. have somebody tell me what the business <laughs> Seems problem like is. Seems like an obvious, it, right? yeah, so absolutely. It's an obvious answer. And, mm. and so I think this is part of the challenge we have with a lot of the government-related structure and funding programs is that they, although they, they try to really make sure that you're addressing a real business problem in the way that the, the funding application process goes and all the rest of it, it becomes really onerous for the organizations to put together the application for funding. Yes, I've heard that. Um, and basically becomes a barrier to organizations to actually get funding through that. Whereas if that same amount of money was driven in a different way through businesses that are actually having the business problems, of course, and there's the challenge of them identifying their business problems, which you talked about earlier. Yes. Um, but I think that's a much better way ultimately to make sure that what's being developed is going to have legs. It's arguably letting everybody do what they're the best, most qualified to do. And it's a balance. To a certain extent. You yeah. know, it's always a balance. You know, and, and yeah. we've, we've taken advantage of and we've really benefited from being able to engage with certain funding programs from the government. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, the, the things where we find the best benefits are where we've had that customer engagement. Because being, right. you can get funding that allows you to do something that really doesn't have any value, ultimately, if you're not careful. We can almost take, sometimes take you too far in the, in, in the wrong, quote-unquote, wrong direction. Right, exactly. Because you get to the end, the funding runs out, and you're no closer closer to commercialization because you right. didn't move towards a problem. Yep. It sounds like you guys have really had your feet in both camps. And look back to your mandate as an organization, it was always about the roots of let's find a problem and solve it. Right. So you get to, fill, you know, there was the power of having, of knowing what you're about as an organization and having that filter. But you've, I, you know, I, I love how you guys have evolved out of academia, kind of taken that mindset, you know, be very, very curious to find the problem. Has being involved with the, has that allowed you to be, easily more engaged with the government because you came from that academic background where there maybe is closer ties? Mm. To a certain degree, sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we we certainly know and talk with on a regular basis most of the government entities that are involved in, in the funding yeah, that's, support yeah, side that's of things. Yeah, that's sure. what I was just making an assumption. Yeah, I, it, we certainly engage with that. And, uh, and again, I think there's tremendous benefits if you do it correctly. Uh, the challenge is if you're doing it in a way that's not necessarily solving a business problem. Back to the original right. comment, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so yeah, you know, I think there's, and they're great. I mean, the people involved in them and the people we work with within these different government programs are really wonderful people, and they're amazing to work with. Um, but as a business, you have to be careful that you don't push yourself down a path that doesn't really provide, a, you know, something at the end that's actually valuable. Get too excited about just the idea itself, let right. alone get excited about this problem you're actually solving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my next one, I was going to ask kind of any advice for startups or people that are in that space. That sounds kind of like the, like the advice. Make sure you're solving a, a real problem. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I'm back to your, your KPI. You really caught me with that one about like, how do we measure the amount of problems that are actually being solved versus just the amount of ideas that are being started? Right. How would we even go about measuring that? Well, that's maybe, where... maybe it is more obvious. Maybe it's just, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's, one of the mandates of CRIN, as an example, one of the mandates of PTAC and, and this consortium, CDIT and so on, is around this business problem identification uh, and then the solution connection that goes along with it. So it is, I'm not sure if it's measurable yet, Okay. the process is being put in place to start becoming more programmatic around this problem identification solution process. So if we look da- if we look down the road, this would be a future KPI that we would want to like. We're building our dashboard. What does it, what does it look like? There's one big shiny number up at the top corner that right. we're going to look at. Yep. This is and is there? Do you have a number? What what would that look like? It's three years from now. It's five years from now. We're solving this this many problems. I'm getting I'm going way in the weeds. On yeah, here. yeah. And, and we don't have a number yet. Of course, <laughs> yeah, of course. But, you know, it's, uh, it, it's <laughs> I'm grasping here. Yeah, it's you know. And, how do you define a problem, of course, and what scale of problem becomes part yes. of the question because it's... Uh, and, then know, and then therefore the, and the impact it can have. Which, right. Yeah. And it's, you know, in, in some organizations, uh, some of the larger oil and gas organizations, as example, are looking at, you know, if I could affect 1% of my, of my cost, that's a massive opportunity for me. But if I could affect 30% of my cost, that's an even bigger opportunity for me. But it's also bigger risk. Yes. And so there's always a trade-off mm. as well between those things. So it's easier perhaps to take that chance on a 1% solution than it is to take a chance on a 30% solution that if it goes sideways could actually have a negative impact on your organization as a whole. That's, do you see, is the 1% 
has it gone from zero to one and now it's going from one to two? Like back to that question of like, are we, cause I always want to know the direction we're headed. And mm. again, back to the old oh, transformation, what does it mean? Yeah. It means an openness to a lot of these things that you're talking about today. Right. And I would, I would like to hope that because this downturn has gone on the length that it's gone on and the hold your breath strategy is no longer, it's not realistic. Yeah. Is that scale moving where it's almost cause there's, there's the risk of not acting. On well, what I'm seeing is really, uh, um, I would say two parallel approaches going on. Okay. Uh, there is a number of organizations that I've talked with who are looking at that. Let's just try something. You know, let's 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 figure out if we can get a one percent here, and if we can get a one percent here, well, maybe that leads us into a much bigger opportunity eventually, and so we can go after the bigger opportunity because we we've proven out the business case in the one percent solution. Yep. We get buy-in, it changes culture. Back to Jim's comment about if it changes, if the mindset of the individuals change and there's more openness, right. but you, sometimes there's, there's, you got to take a bite off a little, little piece at a time. Right. And so that, so I'm seeing that in a number of organizations that they're really saying that that's a good approach. It's less risky, longer term, mind you, but it's less risky and it allows us to do that organizational change as a, you know, as a slow transformational process rather than a rapid, oh, people are going to be concerned about change and push back. Right. On the other hand, you're also getting some organizations saying that, well, it's maybe not worth our effort to do that. Yeah. If we want to make a change, we've got to make a change. And we've got to look at these large-scale things that, that old can adage, actually have massive impact on it's our It's going to be big enough to be worth it. Right. And so it's, it's an investment in time and effort and all the rest of it. And so it has to be of a scale such that it's really going to make a big difference. But then the risks are also higher, which means that they're less, perhaps, interested in dealing with small businesses, which add to that risk. Yes. Interesting. Uh, it's yeah. It's, so what and why should I care? And then, then if I'm going to put it on the table that high, then who do I need to partner with? Right. Do you find because our ecosystem fairly being fairly new here with this level of innovation and, and technology, are companies like that going outside of market for those types of solutions? Like if they need to, is that is that happening? It, it's a, yeah. So CRIN, go back to CRIN again. Yes. That's actually one of the mandates of CRIN is recognizing that the solutions are not necessarily solutions that are already being built in the oil and gas industry. Okay. They could be coming out of the automotive industry. They could be coming out of any place uh, that is dealing with similar kind of problems. So just to give you one example, one of the problems that's been raised here is that in the oil and gas industry, they have a lot of tanks to hold various kinds of fluids that are involved in you know, either processing or in the actual product that's being produced. Those tanks have to be inspected on a regular basis. Right now, to inspect a tank like that, you have to empty the tank out, you have to clean the tank out, then you have to put a bunch of scaffolding up inside that tank, and then you have people walking around inside the tank and climbing the scaffolding to look at and inspect the tank and all the seams and all the rest of it, mm-hmm. to make sure there's no leaks or, or whatever. Well, that's a massive expense and somewhat dangerous for the people involved in doing the work. One of the interests that's coming out of this right now is can we use robotics? Mm-hmm. Can we use UAVs or the equivalents to swim within the fluids within you know these these environments and do the tank inspections without having to empty the tank out? That same problem exists in the automotive industry. They have a lot of fluids they carry in tanks. That same problem exists in a number of industries where they have a large amount of fluids in tanks that they have to inspect on a regular basis. And so the solution, whether it's created in the oil and gas industry and then exported to other industries or whether it comes from other industries and comes back into and, the oil and gas industry. And adapted into our industry. Same problem exists in multiple industries. So for yourself, where do you go to kind of keep your eyes on that? Do you go to a lot of conferences abroad? Are you like going, like, like really throwing yourself to environments where maybe the first 10 minutes you're like not even sure why I'm in the room, but I'm going to listen to see what they're doing? Because like, to run into that kind of stuff, you have to really take, it takes effort and time. It, it does, and uh, I don't have enough. <laughs> and yeah, so I never enough time. Never, never enough, enough time, time for sure. So I actually try to reduce the amount of conferences that I go to to okay. just the ones that are going to be high value because there's, you could literally be on the road every single I'm, week I'm sure. of every year yeah. and never do anything other than conferences. Yeah, uh, but never actually produce. It's anything. like having meetings all day. Sooner or later, you need to get some work done. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So any, any top of your list that you, because of course people are listening and the whole goal is they get inspired and go, okay, I'm going to expose myself to other ideas or I'm going to go have conversations. Any, anything on your, on your recommend list or ones that have been impactful for you that given you, that've changed your perspective? Yeah. So one of them that's actually a Calgary based conference called Convergex has been really an interesting one. Okay. So Converge, I've heard of it, but I don't know anything about it. Yeah. It's uh, Convergex was uh, conceptually around making connections between industries and cross fertilization between industries. Exactly what uh, we've been talking about. Yeah, exactly what we're talking about. So it's you know, it's the uh, defense industry, aerospace industry, security industry, the energy industry, and the mining industry all coming together to talk about opportunities for cross-fertilization. Uh, and 
it attracts the decision makers within those industries to try and find opportunities to engage and move forward. Gets the right people in the room. Exactly. And so it's one of the, the few conferences that I go to where I find that those kind of people are there. We have the right kind of conference. And it's here in Calgary. And it's here in Calgary. Which, which is great because I've had other speakers talk about, well, you've got to go to Silicon Valley and you've got to go to Europe and you've got to see what they're doing in other, in other, in other spaces. Yeah. But I do, I have also heard from other people that I've had on the show, we've got so much going for us here. We've got, you know, a great academic, we've got capital, we've got very successful large-scale enterprises. Quote, unquote, there's no reason why we can't move this to a different place. Right. We have all the, so you're, you're a Calgarian. So obviously I'm, a, you're, you're still here and you've chose to build your business here. I heard that loud and clear. Yeah. What do you see as the future for Calgary? What's, what's out, like what's five years or what, what do you see and what do you hope for? Mm-hmm. So certainly I still see a lot of challenges. You know, we're, we're an economy that's impacted by the global environment. And right now the energy sector globally is going through an awful lot of interesting Conniptions, shall we say? <laughs> Conniptions is a good word. Uh, I haven't heard that word forever. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, on the one hand, <laughs> we're globally an energy industry. Uh, we require energy just to, you know, feed ourselves. And yet, on the other hand, we're also recognizing that there's environmental impacts to the way that we produce energy. And that balance between the two is something that we really haven't come to a you know, common understanding around the world. And so we have very much strong opinions on both sides of the coin. Yes. It seems so polarizing now, right now where that conversation needs to be had together. But anyways, yeah. And it's, and I think unfortunately or fortunately, depending on you look at it, Alberta is at the center of an awful lot of those things. Uh, We have the impacts from the global perspective on that. Uh, On the other hand, we're doing so much in Alberta to, to create clean energy right. and to create a, an environment that is actually, you know, proper and sustainable and, and treating the, the results of what we're doing as something that's really important to make care of and return the land to its, you know, its pristine state or as much as close as possible to that once we're done. That is a big part of what we do here in, in the Alberta industries. And yet we're subject to all these global perspectives around how terrible and dirty and all yes. the rest of this kind of concept is around the oil industry. And, and I find it's kind of, as a, as a Calgarian who grew up in this environment, I've seen the booms and busts and all that yes. kind of stuff that's going on in the industry. And I know that most of the people in the oil and gas industry care about the environment just as much as anybody else, but also recognize that the world lives on energy. Yes, it does. And how do we supply that energy in a way that is cost-effective and environmentally sustainable? That's a big focus of here. And we got all these people that are proposed protesting against that and making it difficult to get oil to market and energy products to market. But what they're doing ultimately by that process is actually promoting other regimes that are producing oil yes. in a non-environmentally sustainable way. And so they can protest locally about all this kind of stuff and create all these issues for the local oil and gas industry. But what they ultimately end up doing is make the environment worse globally. And don't think that's of a powerful that st- Yeah, that's a powerful statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we really need to think of this as a global challenge that we need to address rather than a local challenge. And yes, act right. locally, think globally, that's great. Yes. But think globally. Don't just think locally, because if you only think locally, you're going to end up solving the wrong problem. Back to your, your, you can't vision the end product in the construction. It's very easy to look at what you see in your front yard, but to think globally and truly understand it and see it, it's very challenging. It to, is very to, to your point. Yeah, it's like an opportunity for virtual reality or augmented reality. <laughs> wow. And that's very much on point, right? And so that's where I see a lot of the potential benefits and opportunities that come out of the oil and gas industry and the local environment here is that we have to change the message. We have to change the way we communicate things. Yes, we I agree. We have a messaging problem. Yes, and and that is something that can grow an in industry here, in in and of itself. Right? Is how do we actually become better at engaging and communicating and informing people and making sure that the decisions that are made are encompassing all the perspectives in yes. a way that's meaningful. It, it ties in so well to your story about the construction project of how do you bring in yeah. the maintenance guys? So how do you see the whole cycle? And it's right. so easy to get caught up in our own little limited perspective. You're right. And, you know, Calgary right now, arguably globally, there's so much going on and there's like the rhetoric is it's everywhere right. <laughs> and depends on what newsfeed you read on is what information you're also getting. You're also getting disseminated to you, which is a whole nother yeah. one would say fed, but that's another, st- well, <laughs> that's a, that's a podcast for another day. Yeah. Well, you know, and I definitely see that, you know, everybody has, really good ideas about things and they have you know really positive motivational understandings behind it whether right. you're an environmentalist who's really concerned about the environmental back impact of what's going on or somebody in the oil and gas industry who's really concerned about how do we generate energy that has minimal environmental impact yes, but yet yeah, sustains the world that we live in but mm. 
this is the world we're in, you know, it's, yes. you know, and so how do we actually come together in a way that actually benefits everybody recognizing that, yeah, sure. Ultimately we need to focus on evolving beyond the oil and gas industry, but it's not saying you switch overnight. No, you know, we're, yes. We, we're, it's a transformational transitional process we have to go through. And so we need to support the industries that are already focused on making an environmental improvement in the, in, in the energy sectors that they're in right now, like the Alberta economy and the Alberta oil and gas industry while well, at the same time helping transform the world towards different energy sources. And we, we arguably are very well positioned to do that, but we, but we, and we need to get better at our messaging to be and able to do that. And that's a big opportunity as well as a challenge. That we yes. Have well, which every, with every yeah. challenge or whatever, opportunity they're together. Um, I really appreciate your perspective today and I appreciate what you guys, what you guys are doing. I, I really love the start with the problem. Don't run around with, I've got tech, I want to solve this. And you, you see and hear a lot of that. It takes the road that you're on feels it's a lot more difficult because it takes a lot more time and understanding to, before you even get to the, ah, I think I've got an idea here. <laughs> well, it's, there's a lot of different organizations that are providing, um, resources and support and training and so on around this whole validation process. Right. You know, how do you validate that what you are doing is something that anybody actually cares about uh, and pivot, you know? And so it's, if you're an early stage company, you've got, a, you know, an interesting idea you think is really going to be, you know, val valuable to people, mm -hmm. test it, get out there, validate it, make sure that, you know, somebody actually cares about this, even at a stage before you've developed the tech at all, test the idea out pivot that idea, be willing to change and evolve that idea. Uh, and so until you get to the point where you're actually solving the problem people care about. Any organizations or any places I would go, cause I'm listening to this. I'm, you know, I'm a 10 person startup. I've got an idea, but I haven't maybe done this, what you just described to the extent anywhere they can go. Is it like talking to somebody? Is it reaching out to you guys just to even yeah. go, Hey, how have you done it? Yeah. You know, I know I asked Kirsty the same question and she goes, sure. oh, I don't, she kind of didn't know where to go. Yeah. So, there, there's a community, first of all. So the Rainforest, uh, Rainforest Alberta is a really good community to yep. engage with the kind of people who are in that space. So I would definitely say if you're not involved in Rainforest, but you need to connect to people and talk to people, that's a really good avenue to do so. Get involved. Mm -hmm. Get involved in the community. Uh, and a lot of what we do is supporting the community more broadly because you know, there's, old, again, the old saying of the rising tide floats all boats. I agree. The more we can build up the community, the more the community is really strong, the better everybody's going to be. The abundance versus scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. So that's one of those things. Uh, there's also groups like um, uh, 321 Sales Academy, I think it's called. Okay, I haven't heard of uh, that. They're a, they're a local organization here in Calgary that does exactly that with organizations. They walk them through the sales or the marketing process that's needed to actually validate what they're doing and make sure that it actually fits a customer need. Oh, interesting. So that sounds exactly who you'd want to talk to. Yeah. So, so they'd be a good one to connect with and talk with about those kind of things. Okay. Well, I think it's, it's, it's huge. And sometimes you get so wrapped up and head down and you and your computer and your team and you're focused yeah. on idea and getting out there, almost like going to the conferences, you can network yourself to your blue in the face as well. Right. Yeah. And there's a balance, obviously. Yeah. It's, it's, but it's being in those right environments because oftentimes it's just meeting the right person at the right time. Right. And they say something and you're like, it just hits you. And when you're, when you're in that innovation cycle or development of an idea, those, those, those are, those moments are gold. Right. Jeff, thanks so much. Um, if anybody wants to reach out and get, like, they're inspired, they want to chat with you more, they want to get engaged with your company, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, so our website, obviously, vizworks.com. Uh, it's V-I-Z-W-O-R-X.com. Perfect. Uh, so the kind of best initial avenue. Uh, but uh, certainly we're on LinkedIn as well. And, and you're you're, you're out there. Standard, mm. standard ways. Yeah. And, and, of course, I'm personally involved in a whole lot of different organizations. Which sounds, you're very much in. Events and so on. So happy to talk to people what's going on. And big company, small company, doesn't matter. You guys are very open to, you know. Absolutely. Is there, you know, if I go to your website, is there a way that I can, like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a company that goes, hey, I think I have a problem? Is it yeah. something? Okay. There's a contact us linked on the, on the website. So absolutely follow up through that avenue. So curious, over the last few months, are you are you getting a lot of inquiries? Are people starting to get, are you getting on people's radar and people yeah. are like, hey, I think I've got something that you, it's probably a lot of those kind of yeah. conversations. Yeah, and you know, as uh, our COO puts it, we've, we've been in a position where we've been talked about a lot and okay. now we're getting talked to a lot, which <laughs> oh, is nice. Good. So we're transitioning into that, which is really good. You guys are six, six, what, seven years in? Yeah. 2012, 2013, you said yeah, so about, yeah. about, about, about six years. We've been we've been talked about a lot, and now we're getting talked to a lot. So it's making making the shift. Exactly. Well, thank you very much for coming in today. I really appreciate your perspective, and uh, you shed some, you gave me some good thoughts to think about today. So I'm going to go in and process this a little bit. So thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Cheers.